Please pray with me. Father God, you indeed are a glorious, glorious God. And when we see just even glimpses of your glory, we rightly see ourselves for who we are and we can more accurately picture who you are. When we see glimpses of your glory, we, we know that there is nothing more desirable than you and that all of our earthly wants and affections pale in comparison to the greatness of who you are and what you do. We pray that you would continue to show us yourself this morning. As you have spoken, continue to speak. As you have given, continue to give as we look at your word now. And in that, Lord, receive even more glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you know what God's will for your life is? And when you get a sense of what his will is for you, how do you know that that sense is trustworthy? You know, the way that some people try to decipher the will of God would make a great television series. I mean, some time ago I read of a lady who had an ambition of going on a tour of Israel. She really wanted to go on one of these famed Holy Land tours. And she got herself a pamphlet and she began to look over the information and she she had the money to do it. But she didn't know if it was God's will for her. And so she prayed and she sensed nothing. She thought more about it, and she didn't know what to do. And one night as she was preparing to go to bed, she again was reading over the pamphlet, and she was looking at the accommodations when she would get to Israel and the different places that she would go. And she noticed that the airfare included a passage on a 747 jumbo jet, and she went to bed. And as she tossed and turned through the night and wrestled back and forth, wondering what God's will for her might be, She awoke the next morning to look over her clock and see the bright red numbers, 747. And just then, she knew it must be God's will for her to go to Israel. Now, unfortunately, stories like this are all too common as we hear about the ways that people try to decipher God's will. And today, we continue in our series in the book of Judges that we're calling Break the Cycle, and we see that God is continuing to raise up judges, military leaders for his people, Israel, and to deliver them from these oppressors that they continually find themselves in because of their cycles of sin. And part of this cycle of sin mixed in here is the ability to see clearly and to decipher what God's will is for people at large and individually in our lives. And today we turn to a story of Gideon. Gideon is one of the judges who is accounted to be one of the more favorable of them. He's a judge that we often look up to, and in his struggle to lead Israel, he is struggling to decipher God's will for him. And that's where we'll pick up in Judges chapter 6. So if you haven't done so yet, please grab a Bible and turn with me to Judges chapter 6. It's found on page 205 of that Pew Bible. And we will start reading in just a moment at verse 11. But before we do, we see in verses 1 through 10 that again Israel sinned. They began to worship a foreign god. And in their 
sin, God allowed them to be oppressed by a foreign nation. And as their consequences of sin became so real to them, they cried out for deliverance. God reminded them of his greatness through a prophet. And now he raises up a deliverer, a judge. This is part of the cycle that we've been seeing again and again. And this is what it says at verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midians. Let me pause right there to say he's hiding the spoils or the harvest of grain from the Midians because part of the oppression that these people were under was the Midianites would come and just steal all their crops. They'd come and steal all their grains. They were bigger and stronger, and so they would leave the Israelites with nothing. It says in verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, being Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. And so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put into a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and Presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff and was in hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. If we can pause just for a footnote there for a minute. An Asherah is a wooden pole in the ground that people use as one of the mechanisms to worship Baal. And so the charge is there's an altar that's devoted to Baal and there's a pole, a large Asherah pole, He's to cut down the pole 
and ripped down the altar. And it says in verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order, and then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering and use the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And so Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped at the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali and they all went out to, follow, or to meet him. And then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is a dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. He rose early the next morning and he squeezed the fleece and wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. And then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me just speak once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry and the fleece only and all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground there was dew. So God calls Gideon, and we see three ways in which Gideon responds to God's calling, and in that we learn some things about how to decipher God's calling for us. First, we see that Gideon questions God's call. And actually, we see a progression of questioning that is really happening throughout this book of Judges, don't we? I mean, Follow it with me. The text says very clearly that God raised up judges to deliver Israel. He raised up Othniel. He raised up Ehud. Barak, in some ways, refused to be raised up. Instead, he followed the lead of Deborah. And now we come to Gideon, another reluctant judge. And the calling is clear. God, through the angel of the Lord, meets him And calls him a mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And he tells him that he's going to use him 
in great might to save the people. Now, just think about that for a second. You know, you know how specific words in your life from important people to you can shape or redirect the course of your life. It makes you think differently about yourself, makes you think differently about the people around you, makes you think differently about the course that you're on. Here, the angel of the Lord himself appears to the man and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. But immediately Gideon questions the Lord's competency. He says, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why is all this happening? Verse 13. And where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers told us about being delivered from Egypt? Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now he's forsaken us and given us into the hand of the Midian. And this form of cynical questioning by Gideon is problematic on multiple fronts. I mean, first of all, Gideon fails to admit that it's really Israel that has put them in this position that they're in. God wasn't the one that chose to rebel. God wasn't the one that chose to worship false gods. It was the people of Israel that said, I'm going to go a different direction here. And now they're reaping the consequences of their actions. But Gideon assumes a neutral stance or maybe a victim mentality. He also fails to give God credit because certainly the Lord did deliver his people from Egypt Many, many years ago. But in very recent history to him, the Lord also delivered him through other judges. They had seen and heard miraculously of God's work through the other judges in these incredible military battles in the very recent past. But somehow in selective hearing or selective remembering of history, Gideon chooses not to mention those. Now isn't it true that we are so often to blame God, quick to blame God for the problems that we create for ourselves? I mean, isn't it true that when our own sin or our own actions become painful or they cause a level of dysfunction in our lives, that we're, it's so hard to be humble and just say, Lord, I recognize I've placed myself in this position. Please, please get me out. Instead, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? God, you've never been there for me in the past, and and this is no surprise. When he's been there and working and all along. Secondly, we see that Gideon tries to avoid the responsibility that God is placing on him to respond to this call. He's been reassured of the call, but Gideon's response is to claim weakness. He says to the angel, my clan is the weakest in my tribe of Manasseh. And even within that, I'm the lowest in my father's house. It's to say, clearly, angel of the Lord, you are making a bad choice. I'm a nobody. And I come from a people of nobodies. We're the weak ones. Clearly, you're mistaken. God can't use nobodies. And so again, God graciously assures him of the call. Verse 16, but I will be with you and you shall strike the enemy as one man. And for Gideon, 
the promise of God's presence, the vision of this angel of the Lord, the voice that he's hearing, and the promise of God's might is still not enough. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that God would promise these things and he would promise his power and that he would accomplish these great purposes and yet still a person would doubt that God would actually deliver? I mean, it sounds ridiculous. But the truth is, is that what so many of us do all the time? We have all kinds of excuses when it comes to fulfilling the call that God places on our life. And so often these excuses are just as weak and pathetic as Gideon's. I mean, a business consultant once surveyed 110 executive officers of, country, of companies, and he asked them to describe the most common excuses that they hear from their employees. Not surprising, the number one excuse that these executives heard from their employees were, it's not my fault. That followed by the second place excuse, it's somebody else's fault. And the third excuse being, well, something else came up. And the fourth is, I didn't have time, followed by, I will get to it later, followed by, I've never done that before. No one told me to do it. I had too many interruptions. I'll get to it later. No one showed me how to do it. None of these excuses sound particularly impressive. I mean, they all basically equate to the dog ate my homework. But why is that? Because nobody's impressed by excuses <laughs> at the end of the day. Least of all, God himself. And so in some ways, when we make excuses, when we make excuses, we're being just like Gideon. We're questioning God's competency and questioning his calling, just as Gideon did. So not only did he question but the second response that Gideon gives to this calling is that Gideon doubted God's call. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and tells him to act, but that isn't enough. He doubts the call, and so to try to verify it, we see in verse 17 that he asks for a sign. He says, if now I've found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And so the angel obliges in patience. Gideon goes back to his house for some amount of time, bakes some things, gets a young goat ready, comes back with his present to lay before him, and the angel instructs him what to do. He places the goat on the rock and the cakes, and he pours the broth over it. The angel reaches out his staff, and whoosh, it's consumed. In supernatural flame before his very eyes. Gideon had received his sign. And as the story continues, and after another sequence of events, we'll come back to in a minute, God calls Gideon to act again. And this time, God calls him to lead the people into battle against the Midianites. And Gideon's response is one of doubt, of unbelief. Hey, I asked for a sign the first time, and he gave it to me, so why don't I ask for another one? And he tells God that he wants him to make 
the fleece that he puts out on the floor, wet while the ground is dry. And after God obliges, he wants another one. (laughs) And make the fleece dry and the ground wet. And so, this begs the question, should we fleece God to try to know his will? I talk to people from time to time and they're trying to figure out the course of their own life and they say things to me like, well, pastor, I'm just, I'm just putting my fleece up before the Lord and seeing what he's gonna do. Should we fleece God to try to know his will? I mean, people will do almost anything to try to find out what God's will is. Think of the college sophomore who was in need of a car and he had a series of dreams one night and in his dreams, everything was yellow. Everything. And so the next morning he began to hit the used car lots, looking at car after car after car until he came to one lot. And as he pulled in there, he saw it, a bright yellow car. Everything in this car was yellow. Even the interior was yellow. The kid bought it outright. He didn't even test drive it. He just said, that's God's will for me. And so he bought the car. It was too bad for him. It turned out to be a lemon. There's the example of the Christian who used the open window method in seeking God's will. Have you ever done that? Where you put, open the window and you put the Bible up against the window on the side and you let the wind blow through the pages and when it comes to a stop, you put your finger on there. And clearly you say, that must be God's will. Maybe you don't do it that way, but I know some of us have done this before. I know some of us are trying to do our morning devotions and we don't know what to do that day and we're bored with where we're at. And so we say, oh God, just show me what to do today. I'll do this one. Until the man did that one day and came to the verse, Judas hanged himself. (laughs) And so he thought to himself, well, surely this isn't God's will for my life. And so he put the Bible back down next to the window again, and the page is blue, and he put his finger down on the page, and the verse read, go and do likewise. (laughs) And so the third time came, and he said, well, third time's the charm, and so he found the verse to say, whatever you do, do it quickly. (laughs) As if God works in his calling in some sort of magical way or mysticism that we can just beckon him to answer our requests. You know, one of the oldest Spanish proverbs is translated into English, laws go the ways kings desire. Have you heard that before? Laws go the way kings desire. And it arose when Alfonso VI, at the beginning of the 12th century, had to decide whether his country should use a Gothic or a Roman missile. Not, not a missile like a weapon, a missile like a devotional guidebook for spiritual services. And so, as Alfonso tried to decide which book they should use, the Gothic or the Roman, he claimed boldly that whichever one I throw into the fire, I will throw them both into the fire, and whichever one survives the flame, that is the one that we will use. And so he threw them into the fire. And the Gothic book survived the flame. And as his servants brought it back to him, he said, throw that one back in the fire. We'll see if it survives again. Nope, it didn't. Well, we might as well use the Roman one. Kings, or laws go the way kings desire. You know, it's so often that we do that with God. 
We try to figure out his will that way. We say, God, here are two directions that I could go in my life. Which one would you like me to do? And as some clarity comes to the matter and God says this one, but the whole time you wanted to do this one, you say, I don't know if that's the right one. I'll ask again, God, which direction do you want to go into my life? And God makes clear this one, and, and, but we really want to do this one, so maybe the third time's the charm. God, which one do you want me to do? And again, and again, and again, until the circumstances change, and we say, well, see, that must be God's will. So does Gideon's example give us a way to find God's will? Should we fleece God? The answer is very clearly no, absolutely not. This is not a positive example for us to try to find God's will. Gideon serves as a negative example. Think about the story. I mean, rather than taking God at his word, he doubts him. He physically saw a manifestation of God in the angel of the Lord. He heard God's voice on multiple occasions in this story. God even promised to him, I am with you. He had witnessed miraculous protection after he tore down the altar of Baal. And still this guy wants a sign. He still says, God, show me a sign. And, and you sit back and say, man, what else do you want? Should we fleece God? Absolutely not. This displays his weakness. This displays his lack of faith. Gideon serves as a negative example that we should avoid rather than one to follow because by asking for a sign, he's actually trying to manipulate God to get out of what God has called him to do. What's the sign? Okay, I guess I'll do it. What's this? Well, maybe if I try it again, it'll change. Maybe if I try it again, it will change, and God remains consistent. It reminds us of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, doesn't it? Jesus is in the desert being tempted by Satan, and Satan tells him to have a sign from God. Jesus reminds Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so if that's not a way to know God's will, then what is? <laughs> well, I can offer three pieces of scriptural advice, and then I want to finish with a number of callings that God places on the life of the Christian. How do we know God's will? Well, we can look first of all and primarily to what God has already revealed, his moral law. God gives us everything you need to know for life and practice of godliness. Did you know that? You already have it in your hands. Everything you need to know to please God with your life is found in the scripture. He teaches you how to make decisions. He gives you a framework for looking at your life. He gives you very simple but direct guidance on what should be your priorities and what shouldn't be your priorities. He gives you clear instruction on how to live. Secondly, we, we know that within the scriptures that there is presented to us a way of wisdom. The book of Proverbs and the book of James show us a way of wisdom and that's contrasted to a way of folly. And that in this way of wisdom, we recognize that God doesn't teach us what to do in every situation of our life. If you go home today and you want to make a homemade pizza for dinner, God doesn't 
teach you how to make a homemade pizza in the Bible, but he gives you a way of wisdom of how to gain knowledge in this life that you can apply in godly fashion. He teaches us how to approach every situation of life. And thirdly, we have what we call the leading of the Spirit. And the difficulty of the internal witness of the Holy Spirit is a challenge for us. And these are, the, these are the challenges, because I believe that God does give Christians leading. He does give Christians confirmation by the Holy Spirit. He does give Christians conviction of their sin. And, and particularly as we seek God's will, he does give confirmation in some circumstances. Scripture gives us plenty of examples to this point. But the difficulty is that so many people diminish what has already been revealed for seeking some sort of new revelation. And the difficulty is that so many of us confuse or abuse this concept of the leading of the Holy Spirit and we confuse it with our own desires or our own purposes. Now the Holy Spirit in your life doesn't give you confirmation in every decision and it doesn't need to. (laughs) But at times it does. And when he does, you will know it. There won't be a question about it. And you can thank God for it. And in the meantime, I would encourage you to use the language, God told me, or the Spirit led me to. Use that language carefully. Because God is careful in his leading. And we don't want to casually misconstrue that leading for our own purposes. Here's the point. The point is this, is that you don't need to put your fleece out before God because God's calling is clear. And the one who calls is trustworthy. God's not trying to confuse you. Some of us are here today and we're earnestly trying to follow God. We want to be pleasing to him in our life, but we're just trying to figure out what that looks like. Take great freedom and joy in the fact that God is not trying to confuse you. He's clear in his calling and he's trustworthy in your life. He was clear to Gideon. We saw multiple examples of it. And Gideon's putting out the fleece was just a sign of his lack of faith. He's clear with you. And if you put out your fleece, then that too is a sign of a lack of faith. And so first we saw Gideon questions God's call. Second, he doubted God's call. And thirdly, and finally, we see this wonderful reality that Gideon obeyed God's call. Verses 25 to 35 is the first of a number of places of obedience for Gideon. He receives the sign from the angel of the Lord. He obeyed completely. He broke down the altar to Baal. He cut down the Asherah pole. He built an altar to God. He offered a sacrifice there. Gideon was called to be one who contends for God among the people. And the first way to contend for God is destroying the thing that is enslaving them, worship to this foreign God. But it's interesting that even despite the negative picture that I'm painting of Gideon's decisions today, that God is incredibly gracious with him. 
that throughout this text that Gideon is shown in an ongoing way to have the favor of the Lord, that the Lord clothes Gideon with favor even despite the fact that he's so weak in his faith. And there's a couple of reasons for that that should give you great hope. Number one is that God is a loving, gracious God even when we are weak, (laughs) even when we doubt, even when we stumble. His grace is greater than our will. And secondly, part of God's grace to Gideon is found in the fact that Gideon was completely obedient when he acted. Took him a while to get there. But when he did, he didn't go halfway. He was completely obedient to God, and in doing so, he surrendered his desires, his perspectives, even risked his own life. And God blessed him with miraculous protection and power. God's calling is clear. And he who calls is trustworthy. This morning I want to close on this idea of calling. And I want to give you six calls that God places on the believer. And I'll move through them rather quickly. If you're taking notes, these are something you want to write down and think about and come back to later. Because God's clear in the general sense of how he wants you to live. And when he puts specific, specific calling on your life, he's clear in that as well. And here are six calls that God places in the life of the believer. Number one, God is clear in this call number one, which is the gospel call. If you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, if you want to be, have the favor of God, the first call, the gospel call, is so clear. And you can't go any farther until you've answered this call that God calls you to recognize that you can't save yourself from your sin, to trust in him and his provision through the person of Jesus Christ, to put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and to follow him with your days. The gospel call on your life sounds ridiculous. What do you mean it's free? (laughs) What do you mean I don't have to do anything? What do you mean that Jesus did all the work already? All I have to do is respond But in this call, God is trustworthy. The second call in the life of the Christian is a call to live in the Spirit. When you come to faith in Jesus, you have this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives you more of himself. And the Spirit confronts us and convicts us and comforts us and leads us and guides us and empowers us. And in this gift, God is trustworthy. The third call in the life of the believer is to... Strive to live in a manner that's pleasing to God. Now, ultimately, what is pleasing to God in your life is your answering of the gospel call, the first call. But beyond that, we see that we are to contend for a life that is holy or pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says we make it our aim to please him with our lives. 1 Peter 1.5 tells us to make every effort in our pursuit of Christian growth. Ephesians 4.1 Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The call is clear. And in this call, the one who calls is trustworthy in providing presence and blessing. The fourth call in the life of the Christian is the call to serve him with your life that you put your faith in Christ, you receive what God gives to you, 
You live by the Spirit, but now you live in such a manner in which you trade your agenda for his agenda. That you trade your ideas about your future for his ideas about your future. Part of walking in a manner worthy of his calling is serving him. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, point to the fact that God has given every single Christian at least one, maybe many spiritual gifts for the sake of edifying the family of faith and glorifying God with your life. He's clear in this calling. (laughs) And he who calls is trustworthy. The fifth call for the Christian is to participate in the life of the community. That there's no such thing as a Christian who lives by himself or herself. The Bible uses this language of a community, a body, a family, a temple, to emphasize that each Christian is to live and be connected with other Christians in meaningful relationships. In this community, God promises that his spirit will dwell. In this community, God promises that he will make known the mysteries of his wisdom. In this community, God promises to make known himself, and he accomplishes his purposes through the local church. He who calls is trustworthy. Then we come to the sixth call in the life of a Christian, and that is the more subjective things, the unknown things that God will call you to do. (laughs) I've seen him call wealthy people to give away their wealth for the sake of the gospel. I've seen God take comfortable people and call them to uncomfortable situations for the sake of the gospel. I've seen him make weak people competent and competent people weak for the sake of the gospel. I've seen him move people to the other side of the world and back again for the sake of the gospel. When God calls, you will find no greater joy in this life than answering his call. When God calls, you will find nothing of higher value or higher worth or nothing that gives you a greater amount of happiness. No amount of money, no amount of familial connections, no amount of sex, no amount of material things. None of that will compare to being in full obedience and seeing how God will work through you. But you can know this. Know that when God calls, his calling is clear. And he who calls is trustworthy. And so in conclusion, how do you know what God wants you to do? How do you know he's trustworthy? The answer is that he has already revealed so much to you about how he wants you to live. Clearly. Are you doing it? And beyond that, you can know that in those specific instances that God's calling is clear. He who calls you is trustworthy. And so when he calls, respond quickly and respond in obedience. Let's pray as our worship team comes back up and ask God for help to that end. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the times that we so casually approach your leading or your call in our lives. We ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we have used your name in vain.
by saying, God told me, or the Spirit led me to, when really that might have been just our own desires. We thank you for the clarity of call that you represent in Scripture again and again and that you show us in our life. And so we pray, God, first that you would help us to live out these six callings that you've placed upon us and what you've already revealed to us. And secondly, Father, that in those moments where you nudge us or guide us to specific things, that you give us great courage and confidence because you who call are clear and you're trustworthy. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.